Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. And I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. In this episode, we'll be speaking with James Mumford about his piece in our new issue, The Mind in Pain, and he delves into the problem of depression. Dr. James Mumford is a London-based writer and senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. His latest book, Vexed, Ethics Beyond Political Tribes, was published by Bloomsbury, and he tweets at James A.C. Mumford. Welcome, James. Thank you, James, so much for coming on um, on the podcast. What is your story? Well, it's lovely to be on um, on the podcast, Susanna, and it was a great privilege to um, get to write for Plow Quarterly, which is a magazine uh, and a, a journal I've admired from afar for a while. Um, so th- um, the piece for Plow is called The Mind in Pain, and... Uh, it was a very cheery piece um, <laughs> about the nature of um, depression, and uh, which is something that I've had for 20 years um, on and off at varying degrees of intensity. And I suppose it was trying to square, I am a Christian, um, and it was trying to square those seemingly, at times, vividly, they, they seem very vividly to be incompatible. Um, and so in the sense that, um, I was raised in a charismatic evangelical tradition that, to use the, the one book title, believes that God talks back and has great expectation for um, the intervention of God, the still small voice, if not the um, blast, blind flashing light on the road to Damascus, and that, that, that there's an expectation that, that God speaks and meets us in the dark night of the soul. And I was exploring really what it means when that doesn't happen, when when the overall um, impression is one of religious non-experience um, and how that can be squared and uh, with orthodox belief. And I found a lot of comfort in the at the end of the piece um, looking at um, d- different things that theologians down the ages have said about um, Matthew 27, 46, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? and the abandonment or dereliction of Christ. And Calvin, interestingly, says that the fact that that Jesus Christ, um, according to his human nature, does not experience, um, the the, the sort of Thomistic line is that he has this picture and and never loses the vision, the beatific vision. The Calvin's line is that at the level of his human experience, he does, it's very important that he does experience the forsakenness of God and the silence of God. And um, that was, um, and that, but that he, he hasn't done anything wrong. And of course, there's something unique about uh, Jesus' experience as he carries this, the sin of the world um, on the cross and the Father looks away from him. But Calvin, it was, it was good enough for Calvin, it was good enough for me, thinking that there might be some interesting precedent in the fact that just because we we don't experience the consoling presence of God um, at, at, at episodes in, uh, of intense depression when when things feel like um, the the darkness seems to be pervasive. Um, that doesn't that doesn't mean that that God is absent or that there's something wrong with my faith. Thank you, James. There's something about your pace. Uh, the mind and pain that clearly spoke to many, many of our readers. Uh, and it, it kind of made me chuckle because one of the lines that I remembered 
from your first draft and it's in the published piece as well is there's something about depression that defies communication uh in a way your your article was a a kind of uh not a reputation of that but uh an attempt to convey the reality of it and then a christian answer to it in a way that clearly uh many many people found very helpful that's encouraging I think that that was definitely what I was trying to do in writing about um, literary and philosophical attempts like Elaine Scarry's in *The Body Is in Pain*, um, and and also Conrad's. Um, the interesting point that when Conrad talks about famously the horror, the horror, the words that Kurt says when he has this vision before moments before he dies, we're not given the content of that vision. It's almost as if language Conrad feels there's ellipsis because language you cannot carry and cannot you know endure the full weight of the nihilistic the chillingly nihilistic vision that that Kurtz has and so it was was very instructive to draw on some literature as well and I also just found it incredibly relatable and comforting I depression has sort of not been particularly something that I've struggled with but I have with OCD, um, which is, you know, more an anxiety disorder. And I also was kind of converted in the context of a very charismatic um, a vineyard church, which I think was also your background. Yes. Was that right? Yeah. And there is this common um, sense in the vineyard of, to a certain degree, your perceptions are good theological information about what God is doing. And that can be really helpful if you've, you know, if you need to kind of like, make room for the Holy Spirit um, and for a more experiential Christianity. But if you're struggling with something that's mental health related, it can also be really, really bad um, advice because, you know, as, as the way that you described depression is it tries to give you information about the world. Um, you know, Kurtz is perceiving a kind of maleficent vision um, that is telling him that, that it's true about the world. and. You know, and, you know, one of the things that we have to do in the face of that, if we're Christians, is to say, no, we have a better source of information about the world than our subjective experience. And so for me, it's really funny that you should have gone to Calvin because the, the times in my life where the Calvinists have been most comforting were when I was struggling really deeply with scrupulosity. So I would like read John Bunyan, like, um, you know, John Bunyan's sort of account of his own scrupulosity, which he didn't think of as scrupulosity. He just thought of as like, you know, this is what conversion is like, um, which I don't think was the case. Anyway, yeah, the Calvinists can be really helpful. Uh, <laughs> so I, I just wanted to thank you so much for sharing. Um, you know, it, it is a certain amount of vulnerability um, that you take on when you're putting something like that in, in public. And thanks for letting us be the ones to to bring it into public because I do think it's massively helpful, like massively for other people who are suffering from this kind of thing or similar. Thank you. You also wrote another piece for uh, the New Atlantis, which is sort of a sister publication. I mean, that's really presumptuous. It's not. We just like it. Um, by, you know, edited by our friend Ari Shulman. Do you want to talk a little bit about that piece? Because that was a bit of a different take. Yes. So that that piece was about my experience, uh, an encounter with uh, therapy um, in a psychiatric unit in a secondary care facility. 
which I voluntarily admitted myself in 2017. And, um, you know, I was, I was feeling pretty bad, um, pretty depressed. And um, I found that the therapy they gave us, which was partly group therapy, the group therapy was enormously helpful. But the, the lessons in um, psychotherapy that they gave and some of the exercises they, they gave us, um, I've, about how to sort of work one's way out of depression, I paradoxically felt made the depression worse. And I was interested in why that might be the case. Um, the particular exercise I, I write about is one called a values clarification exercise, which is obviously, um, you know, used in business and in, um, in outside of a therapeutic realm, but is used by acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a, um, a third generation um, behaviorist um, modality uh, dreamt up by Stephen Hayes at the University of Nevada. Um, and they basically the thinking is what you do is they give you this sheet the, the, the psychiatrist the psychologist sorry handed out this sheet and on the sheet were this bizarre jumble of hobbies and virtues as uh, like swimming honesty racket sports <laughs> uh moderation and we were supposed to circle the values we identified with and and then as part of his pedagogy the psychologists sort of said aha well people have circled different things and what does that tell us and he answered his own question because it was a circle of depressives who probably weren't the greatest audience for him and uh, he said it tells us that um, you know uh, we we sometimes have different values and what's more we disagree about our values sometimes and therefore he said and he and this was a direct this is a direct quote values are subjective morality is something he said, externally imposed by society, but values are subjective. And um, it was, and, it, um, and so it was really quite troubling because I felt that, you know, one of the reasons that I found myself in that place, in, the, in acute um, psychiatric care, and, and I think other people in the world find themselves in those settings, um, is because not just of because of faulty brain chemistry and the biological um, huge biological and genetic component to depression and not just because of particular environmental circumstances but but we also find ourselves in trouble in um, in terms of our mental health because of this um, ineliminable existential dimension that we live in a society that's sort of lost the courage of its convictions, perhaps, is unmoored traditions and and is post-Christian in many ways. And, you know, we have questions about whether there is meaning, I do, you know, in, in, in those darkest moments. And so if people end up in that place thinking, um, you know, values are subjective and there is no truth and... Um, there is no meaning and then they're told as part of the supposed remedy that there is no truth and there is no meaning um, that obviously psych psychology becomes as someone said of psychoanalysis um, the problem of which it purports to be the cure it was remarkable to me uh, seeing in this acceptance and commitment therapy um, session that you describe uh, 
just the way that therapy in, in a way is, is sort of at once denying the entire history of ethical philosophy, or at least most of it, and most of the world's monotheistic religions, right? I mean, it's just, yeah. uh, <laughs> this, this is going to be good for you. And, and by the way, you know, values are all subjective and we disagree about and them. We, and we figured that out recently. <laughs> there was something, there was something dark, darkly humorous about that. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Yeah. You describe actually um, arguing a little bit uh, with the therapist and his response to you. Yeah, the other thing, I mean, I think there is something dark to humorous, you're right. Um, there's also something bad faith about it, because, you know, um, one of the amazing things about the hospital I was in and the care I received was just how um, solicitous the practitioners were, the psychologists and the psychiatrists and the, and the psychiatric nurses. And, um, you know, in conversations with little snippets of conversations with nurses in the corridor during moments when one is feeling particularly um, down or or in uh, group therapy from peer support and and from directly from psychologists and psychiatrists you know you're told constantly that you are someone who has worth and that that's an objective fact about the world um, and I think what they think is that that might have slipped out, fallen out of view for you, your sense of your own objective value and preciousness, um, because you've come to see yourself as unlovable for, for any host of reasons. But then in the, the intellectual implications of values are subjective is that we really should listen to your estimation of your own value, which is, um, you know, a very meager estimation. And so their practice of the care that they give, based on the fact they believe objectively that you have value as a person, is at odds with their preaching. They don't preach what they practice. You know, this seems to tie in uh, with a discussion about depression in particular that's been playing out just over the last few weeks. Uh, this sort of contrast between saying, you know, values are all subjective uh, but we're telling you that your low self-value is not subjective, you know, so you shouldn't be depressed. Uh, there's been quite a bit uh, out there about the politics of depression. And uh, Susanna, I think you've done a little workup on this. Yeah, um, I, I think I've probably read a bit more. Yeah, I think you have delved deeply into this. I've, I've sort of... <laughs> You know, I've been much more of a surface uh, follower of this, although I love reading Scott Alexander's blog, so I did read his post. Yeah, and you, uh, James, you had said that you hadn't kind of run into this either, but like I did a kind of, I went into a deep rabbit hole on this. So apparently there was this uh, recent study that, that came out that first Matt Iglesias and then Jonathan Haidt um, did a couple of blog posts on. We will drop links. Yeah, we will drop links. Okay, and big picture, Susanna, is that as probably most of our listeners know mental health is not doing really good right now and especially not for young people and especially not for young women right um but the other and and that was kind of the major um sort of headline but the other the thing that height and um iglesias found was that actually liberals were doing much more poorly in mental health than conservatives and this was striking to the point that um 
liberal men were doing worse in mental health than conservative women. And generally, gender um, sort of trumps other kinds of differences in, in these kinds of things. And uh, Jonathan Haidt had a kind of theory about why this might be true, which uh, got into something that he and Greg Lukianoff had talked about in their book, um, The Coddling of the American Mind, which basically argued that the political mindset that is kind of um, advocated for as part of the ingredients of being a good person by many um, very progressive, um, particularly very young people, Zoomers, has basically is an inversion of another therapeutic modality, which um, called cognitive behavioral therapy. So CBT will say things like, you know, you shouldn't, you, you can like look at your own thought processes and notice cognitive distortions. And then kind of having noticed them say, hey, that's a cognitive distortion. I don't necessarily need to think that way. So some of these are mind reading, like you're ascribing to someone else um, something that they haven't said, and you, it tends to be like a very bad thing that they haven't said. So you're assuming that you know what they're thinking. Catastrophizing. Um, you, you think of something very bad that might happen, and you think it probably will happen. Um, black and white thinking. You think that there are just good and bad people in the world, and the you know everyone is either entirely good or bad. Um, and all of those kind of tend to be uh, things that are to a certain degree promoted by um, at least certain social groups among very liberal, very young progressives. And it it struck these these writers that that could be a, an explanation for why, um, you know, mental health kind of broke down this way, uh, according to politics. But you actually, in the book that you're working on, say that you had a different take on CBT. And I'm interested to hear about that. Yeah, I mean, that is fascinating. Thanks for running through that, um, Susanna. Um, I mean, I think to that point that uh, yeah, there is something um, profoundly stoic and that's about CBT and CBT's founders, Ellis and Beck, both write about stoicism. And, you know, the political critique of stoicism is is that, uh, you know, it, it can be quietistic. Um, and so it, it's interesting that if you're the op if you're very activist, then then presumably that then it makes sense why, you know, you're going to care more about things um, in the world that you can't necessarily control as much as you'd like to. And that might lead to more mental disturbances in um, in the CBT language. So it does it does make sense of why less people are into CBT, the more they might be more activist and also, um, you know, more more liberal in that in that sense of. But I mean, my reading of that would probably be um, um, sli slightly more conservative in the sense that um, with a small C um, in the sense that, you know, there that despite the the harm um, uh, the harm uh, foundation, which is so important to Jonathan Haidt. Um, there is sort of uh, among liberal Zoomers, you know, some of this existential malaise and, and this existential dimension um, of, you know, believing that uh, despite how socially act active activist we are, we don't necessarily know if there's a foundation 
of, of, of meaning that can support some of our aspirations in the world. And so a, alongside the activism is a nihilism. And I think that you know, if, you, if, if that's true, which is a big if, um, it makes sense of the, why, um, if and it's true that nihilism is dispiriting and uh, makes you feel more depressed, as, as it did in, in, in my experience, it kind of makes sense of the data in a different way. So here's some housekeeping and a little reminder before we continue with our discussion. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And then we'll be back with the rest of our conversation with James after the break. Yeah, let me say what, I, what I'm writing about with CBT is, a, is on a slightly different note. Do you want me to go on to talk about that? Yes, go on. Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that, the, one of the key questions is whether Ellis and Beck, as founders of CBT, did actually understand um, uh, the Stoic inheritance that they that they take, particularly from Epictetus. And there's an interesting moment when, at the beginning of Ellis's book where he runs together and conflates two um, quotations. One, the, one is the famous one from Epictetus, the slave, who was a Roman, who then was freed and became. Um, uh, philosopher and was a great influ influence on Marcus Aurelius. Um, and Epictetus says it's not the events themselves, but our judgments of the events that cause us disturbances, or words to that effect. So basically, it's our it's our faulty cognitions, our our awry perceptions that lead to our distress and depression, and not what actually happens in the world. Um, and they run together that quotation with Hamlet's. Um, purely subjectivist line that there's neither uh, good or bad, but thinking make it so. Um, and that's an intriguing moment because um, whether Epictetus can be taken in that direction is a is a you know a, is a matter for scholars to dispute. It's very clear that Shakespeare gives that line to Hamlet um, at that point in the in the play. There are no moral facts. Events are only have only the moral valence that we give to them, the color that we impose upon them from our own minds. And actually we can't, it deprives us of being able to name and apprehend and recognize evil as, as not just a faulty misperception of a, of a perceived threat to us, but as something that exists in the world, um, is there to be recognized and fought. So this is basically stoicism without any natural law, which is not stoicism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. See, this is why I think that there is room for another therapeutic modality that brings together stoicism, natural law theory, and Christianity. Uh, <laughs> but that might, be, <laughs> that might be a discussion for another day. Um, yeah, you're, you're sort of reflection in your new Atlantis piece, which again, we will drop a link to, I thought was fascinating in that it was kind of my first, that kind of thinking, um, that kind of, those kinds of questions were some of my first steps other than kind of, you know, more childhood like steps towards Christianity. Um, because while I wasn't suffering from depression in any kind of like biochemical way, it did strike me as very straightforward that um, you know, if materialism was true and there w was no such thing as right or wrong, that there were, there were no things that I ought to do and ought not to do, 
that kind of like knocked my knees out from under me in terms of, you know, living according to my own sense of what I am and what I'm supposed to be doing in the world. And I think that, you know, the main reason that nihilism and the kind of existentialism that is an attempt to solve nihilism through this kind of life hack, um, you know, are unpleasant is because they're not true. They don't, they are untrue accounts of our own experience of reality, um, of reality itself. And so it feels bad because it's, it's a lie. And if we start kind of a therapy that begins from, no, there actually are things that are the case about you. Um, and it's pretty important that you know them. And, you know, some of those things are, it matters what you do and you have responsibilities that you may not even choose. There are better and worse ways of living, um, and that that is, you know, not one to one connected to happiness. But, um, you know, you you have to go after these things whether or not you're happy because this is what you're for. There's something that you're here for. Um, you're on a mission. Like that's just at least subjectively for me, a much happier way of living. It's much more exciting. It's much more joyful, and it seems bizarre to me to tell someone, you know, choose your own values and then be happy about that. Like, that just seems totally alien to me. Yeah, that's so eloquently put. I, I think that a much surer foundation would be one where um, therapists don't, um, uh, they, 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 they make room for and accommodate a moral quest for uh, the, their clients. And they, they don't think that they can embark on that quest instead of their clients. Um, or do it vicariously through their clients that the people need to um clients people in therapy like myself need to you know go on that that quest to discover the good for ourselves but at least we have it hasn't been foreclosed to us um from the beginning and it is a matter of discovery rather than invention and it's a matter of discovery rather than invention yeah and i was really drawing and channeling a lot of iris murdoch um in in the piece um particularly her her view that what it means to be a human being um is that the, the central metaphor is vision rather than choice and uh that it's it's what we um what we see and how we perceive um goodness when we see it evil when we see it and having confidence in our ability to see and not just to arbitrarily blindly choose one option or the other when um which is which was the existentialism that she she wrote about she wrote a book on sartre early on and then moved away and met sartre in brussels in 1946 and then moved away from uh from from existentialism by the time we come to a text like um the sovereignty of of the good in 1970 or, or whenever that was published for which we can all be grateful and we will drop an iris murdoch link in the show notes as well there is one thinker, one therapist you reference, and I'd be curious just hearing you talk about him a little more, Viktor Frankl, who wrote, you know, this classic text, Man's Search for Meaning, of course, a Auschwitz survivor, and uh, had a man who had uh, obviously experienced real bad things, not imagined bad things, uh, and then uh, sought to take this search for meaning seriously. Uh, how helpful did you find Frankel? 
Well, I would never say a bad word about Frankel because he was such a hero and he gets right the fact that um, a core part of our problem, this isn't to deny the biological or the particular circumstances that, um, that, that lead people into depression, but he did see that our plight, our modern plight particularly, is an existential one. And he sees that very clearly and he sees that without meaning, we can't we can't be happy or that the happiness that we had happiness that we have if it's not rooted in um believing that we're for something bigger than ourselves will only be a superficial kind of happiness and so for that um i think he's a great guide logotherapy which is the therapy he invented i didn't personally find as satisfying um because i was worried about um certain voluntaristic um i aspects to it i.e um a belief that we invent rather than discover meaning and we we are the ones who create that meaning for ourselves which is um which the the um the nice face of that is is going to be something like we create our own values but the nasty face and on the flip side of the same coin is that if we invented our values, we can destruct our values and um, uh, and that they're just construct constructions and fictions and, and it all becomes quite Nietzschean quite quickly. So I think we owe a huge debt to Frankel. Um, logotherapy didn't in my doesn't in my in my view fulfill um, and sort of meet the expectations that that of it that he sets on it. It doesn't seem to me that it's really solving the problem that it understands. Like it describes the problem. That's much better way of putting it. Yeah. 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 It describes the problem, but then it once again says, well, let's just do an existentialism. Um, I, I wonder whether we could talk a bit about, so one thing that you mentioned was the kind of, uh, there is this residue of reality of biochemistry, um, to all of this. One of the things that really freaked me out, um, as a kind of young, person who thought that if you were any kind of a non-materialist, you basically had to be a Cartesian dualist. Um, and whomst among us has not had that misapprehension. I, I basically thought, <laughs> I basically thought that it totally freaked me out when I started taking like Prozac and it like worked. And I thought that meant like, what does that mean for, does this mean that I don't have a soul? Like I'm just, I'm just a brain, I'm just a body. And what helped with that again, <laughs> So, so much of, um, I do think that there are great kind of strides that can be made in people's mental health if they get better philosophy often. And what helped with that, which freaked me out for quite a while, was getting better theology, really, um, and anthropology, Christian anthropology. In fact, the way that St. Thomas talks about the interaction of our our bodies and our immaterial intellects um, is something that actually would make sense of something like Prozac working. I mean, one of the things that he, the three things that he, that St. Thomas prescribes for depression are have a snack, take a nap and take a bath. So like, you know, just make sure you're not like hangry or yeah. tired. And, and the, then just kind of like angels that supply food to Elijah on Mount Horeb. Yeah. Yeah. But there is this kind of um, understanding of the human person, of human anthropology in Christianity in particular, as opposed to in kind of Iris Murdoch 
whatever it was that she was, um, that I think kind of solves and, and makes a lot of room for all kinds of different therapeutic approaches, including medication, including, um, you know, talk therapy, including like lots of different things, because we understand that we're complicated body soul creatures where there are all these weird feedback loops. And in fact, virtue ethics, um, you know, basically gives an account of how it could be the case that in, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been helpful for me, um, you can you can make a choice of your will and your intellect, which then actually rewrites pathways in your brain, bizarrely. So your your mind is doing something to your brain, which doesn't, doesn't actually make sense philosophically under materialism, but it, you know, a lot of modern therapy requires that it be the case. Um, do, have, have those kinds of considerations been things that you're thinking about in your book? Uh, they are now. Um... <laughs> You're writing my book for me. No, but you must, you must claim, claim uh, proprietary ownership over those ideas. Um, I'm in the dangerously listening mode. Um, but uh, I think that, um, I mean, yeah, the, the book I'm writing is no screed against um, medication, despite the problems we know of, of um, overprescription and, and also um, the somewhat... Um, you know, great promises that are, that are sometimes things being over-promised for medication. I still have enough friends who are psychiatrists who, you know, who respond to the the very trenchant critiques of um, medication for mental illness and say, well, you know, what would you like me to do um, to this to this man or to this woman that is is so unwell that he or she is unable to function? is and the behavior is awry and dangerous and and so and it would be bad faith for me having you know taken uh various medications to to sort of give that screed as well um and i think that uh yeah the i don't know if what you're talking about is a sort of affirmation of materiality that we see in incarnational christianity um if if that's partly what you're talking about then i think that there is something um unique about that affirmation of the body and the and the importance of the um of somatic wholeness and the ways that therapy and uh pharmacology can help to get at that um and secure that somatic wholeness um that's not my my quarrel no so what is your quarrel what what other sort of aspects of this are you working on now that you'd like to bring out for the listeners or what is the center? Yeah, my quarrel is with um, a subjectivism, what, what, what C.S. Lewis called the poison of subjectivism. Um, and it's difficult to know whether that is caused by um, the therapeutic as a syndrome or whether it's a consequence of the therapeutic, whether it's caused by it or whether it causes um, therapy to be like the therapy that I encountered. So that's one of the sort of big questions I'm wrestling with. and. You know, Philip Reef is is a, such an important figure here. His book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, from nineteen sixty six, is is still you know an invaluable contribution. Um, I think one last thing to sort of say would be how the problem with how we've come to understand moral development and you know um, the way we think about the education of children that we 
the, some moral develop, development theorists, beginning with Piaget and then moving on to Kohlberg, you know, think that uh, moral realism, as they put it, um, or this belief that, you know, there's a right and wrong outside of ourselves, bluntly, that transcends us and that we need to see or integrate ourselves with in order to be whole. That that's part of the building blocks of reality, that is part of the fabric of the world. That that moral realism is an infantile notion that is heteronymous and something that we grow out of. It's something that we we come maturity is coming to realize that we are the source of moral rules, and that's baked into how we how they understood the uh, cognitive moral development of children, um, which obviously has huge implications for how you think about raising, how I think about raising my own children, how I think about education, and and at its core is um, is this this same this this same idea that you know we're, we we don't we, we our, our hands are going to be empty in terms of what we have to hand on to our children if we really believe that we're the source of the norms um, that we live by and thrive by. I mean, as as a dad, I I, I really love that insight. Um, of course, now I've I've teenagers, and if I were the source of the norms, um, I, I, I'm not sure <laughs> how much convincing power they'd have. <laughs> yeah, there wouldn't be authority. Yeah. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks so much. Nice to meet you, Pete. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com membership to learn more.